everybody. Welcome to Perspectives of Change show. I'm Sarika Karbanda, your host of the show, as you know. And we are back here with a wonderful topic and yet another awesome speaker. As again, before I begin the introductions for the topic and our esteemed guest, I'm going to introduce what is Perspectives of Change all about. So we at Perspectives of Change are really dedicated to exploring how to nudge change forward by understanding and valuing multiple perspectives. Because as change agents, we might just get biased by our own perspectives and might not remember to look at the others. So let's understand, value multiple perspectives and nudge change forward. With that short introduction, Let's move on to our amazing speaker for today. We have Cheryl Whitney dining, uh, dialing in. I was like dial, dining in, <laughs> dialing in from Perth, Australia. Hey, Cheryl. Hi. Great to be with you. Thank you for asking me. We are so delighted to have you here. I'm going to do a really short introduction of Cheryl. I am very sure I'm not going to do justice to that introduction because... She's got really awesome experience there that she's going to talk about. But here's how I'm going to introduce her. I see her as a courage, connection, and agility expert. Um, she's, she seems to be the founder of something called Tricky Treats, and I'm really intrigued. I have no idea what that is. Uh, she's the inventor and co-founder of that. I read the stuff on the website and her introduction, and I was like, wow, that's awesome. But I'm going to let her introduce what that is. She's also the founder of Lyft. And in the organization of hers, which is Lyft, she's on a mission to lift your agility. And you're going to find out what that is. She's also a Daring Way facilitator by Brené Brown. And that's my introduction or a nutshell introduction of you, Cheryl. I'm going to throw this to you now. How about you introduce yourself to all of us? Well, that's a pretty good job. Thank you, Sarika. I think that's, um, that's nailed it. I do have a diverse life on purpose. Um, I'm very grateful for that. Tricky Treats is an invention for dogs. So if you're a dog lover, um, get in touch with me. I invented a toy and treat dispenser um, probably, gosh, about six years ago now. And it's been in the marketplace for four years. It's designed to keep your dog happy while it's home alone. So it sits on the wall, it has two shelves in it, and you put toys and treats in there on a timer and then it drops out um, when you're not home at different times of the day. And you can record your voice so you can talk to your dog or a lot of people use it for recall training. So whatever, however they recall their dog in the park, they put that same word or that same noise onto the tricky treat and then they get, you know, double training while, while you're at work, the dog's getting some training at home and some toys and treats. I had a beagle um, and uh, he, he lived till 15, till last year. Unfortunately, he had to leave and move his soul on to some other well-deserving um, dog. But uh, he was the inspiration for it because beagles are very naughty and uh, they don't like being alone. They like to be in a pack. So he was the inspiration when he was a little puppy to invent it so that I could leave the house and he wouldn't be howling down the neighbourhood. So it's been a lot of fun, that journey, and it's given me a lot of first-hand experience in change and in agility and the importance of building trust with your suppliers because I knew nothing about retail. I knew nothing about inventions. My background is all leadership and management. That's what Lyft is about, um, developing leaders 
and our, you know, our whole focus is building trusted leaders and trusting teams. It wasn't inventing a, a product for the dog industry, the pet industry. So I had a lot of learning to do, uh, but it's been, it's been a really good journey because it's been fun, it's been exciting, and it's made me walk my talk as far as change because we've had some classic failures along the way and we've had some, you know, amazing wins as well from from having to change designers because we didn't have a trusting relationship with that designer and that was very confronting and very damaging to our process. It put us back a year, um, but we had to make the break and take a leap into the unknown and find another designer. Um, that was probably a low point and then high points like being on Shark Tank and being nominated to go onto Shark Tank and getting to pitch your product um, and getting the support of one of the judges um, off screen, we didn't get a deal on the TV, but we we had the um, off screen support of that judge um, to this day. So yeah, there's been some real kind of highs and lows around change, and lots yeah. of different perspectives. Everyone's got a view on how you should invent something, how you should do your prototypes, how you should market it. If I had hundred bucks for every time someone's going, I've got a marketing idea for you, I'd, I'd be a wealthy <laughs> woman. <laughs> So that's one side of my life. And the other side, as I said, is LIFT, which is all about, um, it's an acronym. LIFT is learning that's inspirational, fun and transferable. Our style is very interactive. Um, it's all about, as you said earlier, um, Sarika, it's all about connection and agility. And that begins with the courage to create that connection and agility. And we find mostly we're dealing with leaders that are leading change because that is particularly in the last two years, the world around us is changing at home and at, and at work like it has never done before. So um, we're do, working with a lot of leaders of large organisations um, and team leaders of those, those teams under them, anywhere from five people to 50 people in a team, um, virtual or in person or a combination of that these days and how they navigate through the change that is shifting almost weekly at the moment. Indeed. Yeah, that's that's a good point you bring. And, and I know you're doing a lot of uh, that and much more good stuff at Lyft and where I think, uh, if I remember correctly, the last time we connected, you were also talking about, uh, uh, isn't there, aren't you also doing talks around, you know, how do you build courage? How do you enable people to, you know, do, do you want to share a little about that too? Yeah, um, I do keynotes on how to build courage uh, in your teams to create a safe space so that people can be vulnerable because I'm very much a believer that you're not going to get to agility and innovation without the founding um, blocks, I guess, of courage and vulnerability. If it's not safe to be vulnerable, then you aren't going to get to the next point, which is connection, teamwork, collaboration that leads on to agility and innovation. So it has to be safe for people to go, I've got a crazy idea. What if we did it this way? I know it's never been done like that before. Or I'm not sure if that path we're on is actually going to get us to where we want to go. Maybe we need to stop, you know, which is a really vulnerable thing to say in a busy workplace. Maybe we need to stop, take a moment, reflect and look at other perspectives. Um, those things require a lot of vulnerability to put your hand up and do that, whether you're the leader or the team, the team member. So, yeah, we're doing, I do a lot of keynotes around that and I also, you know, do some work um, with not-for-profits, helping them to be able to establish that, you know, that space for them because they're going through change just as much as the big corporates are as well. Indeed, yeah. You, you bring out a very interesting point which leads us directly into our topic and I think uh, 
if I'm not miscoding, it was Brené Brown who said, we need trust to be vulnerable and we need vulnerability to be building trust, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it goes both ways. And then that brings us to our topic and very important characteristic, I would say, um, where most leaders know that, you know, in any successful change or whether you, you're talking about any, any type of transformational change or even personal change, we know trust is like one of the most key ingredients that's available there. Uh, Patrick Lencioni talks about it in his pyramid of the five dysfunctions of the team and, you know, absence of trust is like the base of the pyramid. Now, given that all thought leaders are talking about this, we know that this is what it is and trust is so key to pretty much any change journey to be successful. Yet we are still hearing a lot of leaders and teams talk about trust as if, I don't know, it's like a magic pill or something that's going to, you know, pop up from somewhere and we're just going to somebody's at least going to give us, I don't know, the blue or the red one. And then, uh, you know, like, like you termed it uh, when we were talking, uh, this unicorn-like creature. So why, why would you say that is the case today, Cheryl? I, my view, I guess, is that trust is still viewed as something elusive, like it comes and goes. Maybe it's in a team. We've all worked in our career in an awesome team where everyone's just clicked and it's happened and we've had a great time and we've achieved amazing things. And then we've worked in other teams in our career where people aren't in sync, there isn't that trust and it hasn't worked well. I don't think that we stop to review what's actually going on in those different situations and then we learn from that. And we don't get taught it in schools. We don't get taught in, you know, primary school or high school, what are the elements of trust? How do I decide if I trust someone or not? We just tend to go on our instincts. And then when our instincts maybe fail us or point us in the wrong direction, we think, oh, I don't know anything about trust. I I don't know if I can trust someone or I can't trust someone. So we start to lose trust in ourselves And I think that's when we get to thinking it's this magical thing that we have no control over and it just kind of comes and goes in our lives. So from my point of view, it's it's like Brene Brown says um, about empathy as well. Trust, empathy, vulnerability, they're all learnable skills. They're not magic. We can actually learn them. But until her research, I think there wasn't a lot of conversation out there around um, in our communities, in our corporate world, and certainly as a world discussion, we weren't talking about vulnerability until she came along. And when I trained with her in 2016 in Sydney, she put us through our paces for two and a half days. It was fairly intense. Um, I thought I was going to your normal conference where the speaker talks and you watch some PowerPoint slides and you fill out a workbook and you get your certificate. No, no. (laughs) Her, Her style of training is very different. You're in a group for two and a half days and you were going through your absolute vulnerable stories, your shame, your triggers, everything that that makes you tick as a human being because she doesn't allow you to be accredited and do the work unless you have done the work yourself. Um, And then you have nine months after that of meeting with a coach every month for three hours in a group doing this same type of work around vulnerability and courage and trust building. So you get to understand that trust is very much a learnable skill. And although I felt at the start that I was reasonably good at creating trust, I'd been doing it in my work and I have fairly good trusting relationships in my life. After I'd done that process with Brené Brown, I really felt like I had honed my skills to be able to develop trust. And she has, based on her grounded research of thousands of people she's interviewed, she's got seven elements, which she's put into an acronym called BRAVING. And those elements really give you a checklist for your own self-trust as well as trust building in teams. 
And that's mostly what Lyft does. We build trusted leaders and trusting teams and we refer back to those seven elements all the time. So for me, that takes away this concept of trust being like a unicorn or well, maybe it'll come into my life and I'll see it and won't that be fantastic, mm-hmm. but I better not think it's going to hang around. It's just going to be this amazing moment and then boom, it's gone. Um, so I really want to bust that myth and help people become far more confident about consistently building trust. And part of that, I guess, is that it, the seven elements of braving are really around how to build the trust once you have already got the courage to be vulnerable in a safe space that builds connection. So there's a bunch of work that has to happen before we get to the actual sustaining of trust. And I think we forget that sometimes. We see trust as the goal when actually the goal is to create a safe space to be vulnerable and have that courageous connection. And then trust is something we start to develop after that. It's a bit like gardening. You know, you prepare the soil first, then you put the plant in. The plant is the trust, and then you look after that plant really well. But you've got to have good soil to begin with. Right. I love what you said and the fact that one is learnable. And Okay, I have a, like a flood of questions coming in, but let's let's take it one on one. Maybe maybe we should probably want to start with because you're saying courage, connection, vulnerability, everything. It's all about starting with yourself. So maybe that's my first question. If somebody wants to be on this journey of building trust, right, with others later, how do they start on this journey? Do they start with themselves first? If so, how do they do that? Give us some yeah. tips and pointers. No, there's no magic pill, but yeah, something that you can share with us. Uh, I would say, going back to the acronym of BRAVING, the, the B in BRAVING is boundaries. And what I've noticed in the teams that I coach, the one thing that is the most popular takeaway from the trust building team days is boundaries. So what are my boundaries? What's okay for me? What's not okay for me? And if I get those pretty solid in my life, personal or professional, then I'm going to trust myself. And I also speak those openly to others. These are my boundaries. This this is what's okay for me. This is what's not okay for me. Then I'm building trust with others because I've got that transparency and I move into the R for braving, which is reliability. I'm being accountable, which is the A in braving. So I'm starting to move down the list just by creating my boundaries. The weird thing is that us as humans, we don't tend to stop and journal what are our boundaries. You know, we journal a lot if we're journalists. We journal a lot about our feelings and our reflections and things, but actually starting with our boundaries. And that could include our values, which is often something that's done in personal development work. What are your values? I think asking what are your boundaries and blending your values into that is is an important difference because my value might be honesty, but my boundary is that I need people to ask me questions, not just tell me information. So Mm. there's a bit of a difference there. I would absolutely say start with your boundaries, work out what your boundaries are. And if you're not sure, a great way to start is ask your friends because they know what your boundaries are. They'll go, oh, you don't like this or you like this. So sometimes other people that are close to you that you trust, they actually know your boundaries if you're a bit stuck in starting with them. I love what you said when you, you know, you start with the boundaries and reminds me of how I talk about trust when I say, you know, how do you, when you start with yourself, it's, it's like dancing with a partner, you know, it's like dance where you are setting up your boundaries in the dance that this is really the area that you cannot get into. And this is the area that I'm not going to come out of. So for me, that was like a complete mental picture 
of trusting the other person and the other person trusting me by setting up that boundary uh, which also has a gray area to it right but it's setting that gray area up openly courageously so that there is no gray area so you know you limit those i, I love how you put that so just reminded me of that kind of a stance of any dance form that you can take and say ah oh, that's a nice yeah. one that's a great analogy because if you think of ballroom dancing, it's so beautiful in motion when two people are absolutely clear about their boundaries and how they fit together. And I'm terrible at it because I always want to lead and that's not the girl's role, you know, regardless of the world that we live in now, which is becoming much more equitable in ballroom dancing, the girl doesn't lead. And I'm terrible at it and I'm always getting in the space of my partner and then it becomes just this messy mash. But people that are great at it float around the floor effortlessly in a very highly efficient, dynamic, um, high-performance process, yeah. So so just taking that forward, uh, Cheryl, what, what are the dangers you would say for people who believe that trust, something like trust is not a learnable skill. I think I want to go back to this being learnable and not learnable. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I really see, see the danger as lack of accountability. So if you think it's a magical thing, if you see anything, but let's take trust. If you see that as a magical thing that comes and goes or it's elusive, you don't have to be responsible for it. It's not your job to build it. It's not your job to be accountable for it. And therefore, you don't need to own your behaviours. So if you lose your temper and are aggressive or overtly abrupt or in somebody's personal space because you're having a bad day, that's definitely a trust breaker because it makes people feel unsafe. But if you believe that trust is elusive and it's not your job to build, well, then you don't have to be responsible for those behaviours because you're not doing any damage because trust is just this thing that happens and, you know, you're not directly contributing to it. So I think accountability is at risk when we don't see trust as a learnable skill. Um, when we do see it as a learnable skill, then it's up to everyone to be building trust in the team between their colleagues, between their stakeholders, between their clients, whatever it might be. And then it becomes a performance um, requirement that we're all building together. Hmm. Interesting. We also you know, hear a lot of this when we converse, whether in the professional space or personal space, that uh, uh, it takes a long time to build trust and really just a few moments to break that trust right um what's your view on that yeah i think you can i think you can break trust in an instant but i do think the older i get i didn't think this in my 20s and 30s but the older i get now i think that when trust is broken i need to step back for a moment take a breath and go what happened there what's actually going on for that person. Because if I've had quite a significant amount of trust for that person for a long period of time, I don't want to burn that bridge in that moment forever. Um, I probably would have in my 20s and 30s, but I think now um, I would hold back a little bit, ask some questions and find out how, I, how we could repair it. And again, if you go back to those seven elements of trust, it kind of gives you the tools of which, which part of the trust got broken. Was it accountability? Was it the vault where confidentiality mm. was leaked? And it allows you to then go to that person and say, hey, I told you that in private and I hear now you've told such and such and that's making me not trust you. And I, I, I don't want that to be part of our friendship. So what can we do from here? Whereas maybe, you know, when I was a lot younger, I would have just gone, that's it, they're, they're dead to me. Um, so I think that 
that also helps. If it's a learnable skill, it's also a relearnable skill. It's something that can be repaired. Obviously, the, the, you know, the, the level of the trust breaking and the hurt and the grief that comes with that, when that's much higher, I think that takes a lot, a lot longer and it could take years. It, could, it may never come back depending on how much of the, the hurt is associated with that, that break in trust. I think in the workplace, we can build trust quite quickly in little moments just by listening to each other. People don't expect that these days. We're also distracted and not focused. If you actually make eye contact and sit with someone for a couple of minutes and genuinely ask them how they're going and wait for their response, in a few minutes you can build trust. Not lifelong trust, but trust enough that the next time you come back to that person at their desk and say, hey, could you get such and such for me? They'll probably do it because the last interaction they had with you built a little bit of trust. So, you know, Brené Brown and others often say trust is built in moments to moments. I do, I do believe that and we stack them on and we build them up in our trust bank account. And equally, the next time we might speak to that person and we're a little bit offhand or not focused, maybe we, we you know, detach a little bit or we detract a little bit from the bank that we've built up. So I think those things can be kind of growing and, and lessening depending on how we're behaving on the day. Does that answer what you were saying? Oh, Definitely. No, no. Uh, I, I was so curious to hear your perspective. You've got so many out there and I'm just trying to pull as many as I can, uh, not just for our listeners, but also for myself, just to learn so much more from that, which gets me to another question now, going back, feeding all of this into the very professional context that we all work in with leaders in the change context. Uh, one of the things I think we just, uh, before getting onto this uh, podcast, we were just speaking to Dirk and he was mentioning, you know, about um, not being able to get buy-in and question, you know, from leaders and just throwing change at people. And my perspective would be not doing change with people and doing that at people, really. So the question is, where does trust fit into that picture? So because obviously people at the bottom are going to say, hey, we don't trust the management. You know, it's we know how it goes around here and all those kind of symptoms and statements that you start listening to. So um, what would you say to that? I would say that when trust is not focused on as a key ingredient for change, the change is going to fail. Hmm. So we already know statistically 71% of change fails because of lack of engagement. That's a huge stat, 71%. Like I wouldn't cross the road if someone told me I only had 30% chance of success. Hmm. So if we're saying a change project that, organisations spend thousands if not millions on has a 30% chance of success without engagement, that's, that's, not, that's not a good success rate. And how do you get engagement? You get engagement through connection and connection builds trust. So if the focus is not on building a trusting team, then I would say your change is going to fail. Every job I get asked to do to facilitate, to work with teams that are going through change, the whole thing that the team is saying is we don't know the project we don't understand the parts of it we don't know what the vision is we haven't been asked about how this is going to impact on us we've got ideas about how this could be different and we've been told we have to do it like this but actually that's not going to work for us at the front line and no one's listening to us so you've got all these issues around change and if you look at say Fisher transition curve which is a change you know there's heaps of change models out there but this is the one I use um, people often put themselves in the fear or the resistance phase they don't want to be there but that's how they feel because they don't have enough information mm. so if we don't start with the frontline people that we're going to ask 
to actually be the engine room of change if we don't start with them and have a talk with them about what we're hoping to achieve and what do they think how do they see that they could carry this change forward then it's it's destined for failure because those conversations build up trust and secondly those conversations build a wealth of knowledge because they know better than the top that's that's designed this change they actually know how they're going to create it run with it and you know engage with it so I've got some clients now that are doing their strategic planning this year and post um, some of the learning from COVID, they are turning their whole strategic planning upside down and they are taking the draft to the front line and saying, this is what executive is thinking about for the next year or two. What do you guys think? And they're gathering the information from the front line and then it's going back up to executive and then and only then are executive turning it into a plan. Whereas previously the plan's done 90% if not 100% set in stone and then it gets distributed out for your information to the front line where, where you get resistance and people go, well, no one asked me about that. That's not going to work for us. So there's, there are some clients I'm working with that are doing it really differently now and in an agile way, turning it upside down and, and giving it to the front line to really design the change and they're getting engagement. Mm -hmm. And just adding on to what you just said, it's brilliant because the moment you turn this upside down, where co-creation is really starting at the bottom, where the teams are going to get impacted, and that mm -hmm. feedback is then getting fed into the overall change plans, which is better because it's also going to reduce the resistance and everything else is just going to change drastically, including the language that's being discussed with the people trust automatically gets increased in a way they're like, oh, people are listening to us. They're taking our feedback and value back, right? So, so my question then, Cheryl, is if we know all this also works, why is that such a problem to start with? <laughs> where's, where's that going? And is, is there another trust issue there that we do not see? Mm. I'm going to sound like a broken record, but it comes back to vulnerability. <laughs> so it leaders need the courage to be vulnerable it's a vulnerable act as a leader say you're a ceo of a health service or you're the director of a large corporate mining um, organization it's very vulnerable to say we're just going to do a dot point draft plan and then we're going to give it to our frontline staff and they're going to create it from there and give it back to us and then we're only going to tweak it we're not going to throw it out and say this is what we want because the vulnerability comes from this from the CEO or for the senior leader, pushing upwards to the stakeholders, pushing upwards to the ultimate bosses and saying, this is how we're going to do it. We're not, the executive's not going to have all the answers because actually we don't. Actually, the frontline does know more than us. We, we, our gift is in bringing it all together and making it work and then, you know, promoting it to whoever we need to do that to. That's our gift, but we actually don't know the nuts and bolts. They, they do the frontline. So the, the vulnerability is what's required. And where I'm having the joyful opportunity to work with leaders who are vulnerable. You know, I'll give you an example. One of the leaders I coach has done a video out to their staff saying, this is what we would like to do for the next year. We don't know if this is right. We could be completely off base here. Tell us what you think. And that, that takes vulnerability. But the response to that is massive engagement because people think, wow, they're actually asking us, they're actually saying they don't know. Because most of the frontline staff are saying, what is management doing? They don't know what they're talking about. You know, so naming that and putting that out there, it's not saying they don't have a plan. They've shared their vision. They've said where they'd like to go. They're still leading. What they're asking for is, this is our idea of how we get there. What do you think? 
and, and being open and wanting to see that feedback. So my short answer is the lack of courage to be vulnerable at the top is what gets in the way. We should know. We have a hierarchy that is required to know. That's what we're paid to know. So we will put the plan together and we'll tell everyone what we're doing instead of asking and being curious, and that requires agility. And one other thing I'll, I'll add is people are not doing five- and ten-year plans anymore. You know, we're doing one to two, maybe three-year plans, maybe, but most of my clients are doing two-year plans because it's a world that requires agility now, and that's a vulnerable statement too that some stakeholders might not like, but that's the truth. We don't know enough to plan more than two years. Like you rightly said, you might sound like a broken record, but I love the whole conversation. I think you brought out exactly what our viewers and listeners should know again and again and again. So no, you were just brilliant there, Cheryl. This is really good. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm not going to ask you more questions, although I still have a flood of questions coming into my head right now. And I think I can get even more value out of that uh, by asking all of that to you. But let's open the floor to a little bit of you know questions from our audience here already. Um, people just unmute yourself and uh, go ahead, ask Cheryl your question and she would be delighted to answer, I'm sure. Hello. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for all your inputs. I really appreciate the conversation. I have a question that is how to build trust um, having the gender gap because um, for instance, if you have a company where, where uh, they are all male, and if you want to be more vulnerable, vulnerable, how can we do that without being seen as weak? Mm. Great question, Isabel. So I think when you're dealing with men, one of the things that, and this is not so much about trust, but this is more about communication, one of the things I've learned is less words is more powerful. Women tend to use a lot of words. I use a lot of words. And when I'm talking to men, I cut it down to bullet points and key questions because that's how they operate. So, Dirk, you might want to put in here and um, correct me if I'm wrong. I think from my experience, I'm, I get much better results when I'm clear uh, about what I'm asking. And the second thing that I... So there's a little format that I'd share with you, Isabel, which is why am I saying this? So it's called Format F. Um, MAT, it's by Bernice McCarthy, and it helps you structure your language so that you're really focused when you have a, a, any discussion, whether it's in a passageway or you're going to a formal meeting. Why am I raising this? What is it that I'm raising? How do I see this happening? And what next do I want to occur? So why am I raising this conversation with you? How do I want this conversation? Uh, sorry, what do I want to raise in this conversation? One line, key point. How am I seeing this conversation happening between you and I? Um, and then what next? What do I want out of this conversation? One single request. So that can help to really focus the conversation. And then the second thing I'd say is that it's important. Uh, the vulnerability would come from you in asking what is it that they want and how best do they see you being able to deliver that? Because often um, any boss, but particularly a male boss, will already have a fixed idea of how they see your role and what they see they need from you. So getting that out of them, asking them that, does two things. It shows your courage because you want to know what they already are thinking. It shows a vulnerability of I'm happy to ask, I'm happy to find out from you. 
and then you can state whether you can or can't deliver that quite clearly. So that's your boundaries. That's your vulnerability of, you know, if they're asking for something in three days or they're asking for something that you're not resourced to do, then you might not in that meeting straight away, you might take some time to reflect, but whatever the time frame is, come back to that person and say, I've heard what you want from me. These are the resources I'm going to need. So you're making a request back for more resources or for whatever it might be, or you're saying that time frame is too tight or yes, I can do it as long as these are the conditions. So really making an agreement between you and your particularly male counterpart. So women tend to say yes too quickly um, and we tend to not ask for things. So if you, I've had the privilege of working with some fantastic male leaders and they've taught me a lot. They're, they're very courageous. They don't even call it courage. Women call it courage. Men just call it business. Go in there and they say, I need this, I need this, I need this. If that's what you want me to deliver, no problem, but I'm going to need this, this and this. So that, does that sound useful to you, Isabel? Yes, I, I, I resonate with that. I started doing some, some of the things that you spoke about and I, I agree with using small sentences and small requests at a time because last year I did that and I saw an impact on, on that thing. And I didn't do that. I tried to use a lot of issues, a lot of subjects in the same conversation. And it was very complicated to pass the message through. So, yeah, um, but I had to be aware of that. I wasn't aware um, of that. And when you explain the being able to ask the other person what they expect of me or passing the ball onto them, um, I, I didn't do that as well. And I started doing that. But it's difficult because we are not wired to think like that. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's a little bit hard to to slow down and to not to say yes um, every single time someone asks something. So yeah, it's difficult to to do that. But yes, it makes complete sense. And it's important to do that for your own success, for their success with you, and for the organisation. So you can't do everything. Women are raised to believe they can, you know, do everything at once. A lot of spinning plates. It doesn't serve us well in the business environment. So pick the things that you can do and do them really well and let the others go. And that will be the measure of your success. Good luck. You. you can reach out Thank to you. me on email if you want to. I'm happy to support you. Thank you so much. Brilliant. You have more questions? Mine was not so much a question, but more an observation, in fact, that uh, we were now talking about trust in, in uh, let's say, organizational context. Um, I think it's even more, all the things you said uh, are even more valid in a community context where uh, you have to, well, let's say, uh, political leaders or other leaders in the community, they have to have that trust as well. Uh, in order to 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 reach their goals, uh, and it's not not always, uh, uh, let's say, uh, one of the primary concerns of um, of leaders, let's say, to to build that trust. That was saying, just my. Are you saying, Dirk, that that it's not? Um a leader's primary concern to build trust or that it is? It, it, it should be. 
but I, yeah. I don't think in, in many cases it, uh, it is, in fact. Yeah. Um, they try to build uh, trust. <laughs> and now I'm, I'm exaggerating, but let's say uh, six months before elections, <laughs> they try to build trust. But uh, in between elections, there that's it's not so much their uh, trust building, but but more the power game. Let's say that that counts. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, we've got a situation here where our prime minister has, um, for Father's Day, went home to see his kids uh, in Sydney. He's based in Canberra. There are some borders and some security and some quarantining and all sorts of things, as you well know, um, living through this pandemic. And while technically he was allowed to do that, the perception of the country was he's getting special um, allowances. And so that is a trust issue straight away for millions of people that can't go and see their family overseas, let alone interstate, um, and are abiding by the rules. And then your leader doesn't appear to be now technically because he works in camera there's you know all these different things that are above my brain power to understand but apparently technically he was allowed to do whatever he did um, but the perception which is what trust can be built on is that there was an integrity issue and and in the braving acronym I stands for integrity and if you lose that if you do something different to what you're saying you're asking the rest of the country to do you've got mm -hmm. a trust issue and that could you're right, Dirk, that could damage his um, his next election campaign, which is coming up soon. And then we have a we have a premier here in Western Australia where I live who can do no wrong. His trust is through the roof. He's the most popular premier ever in the history of this country because we have very little COVID in our state. Now, some of that is because of our geographical nature and he's just lucky to be the man of the hour. Some of it is because he's made good decisions. But the challenge for him now is he can only go down from where he is. So he has to be super vigilant to make sure that every time he presents in public that he is maintaining that trust because he's got this precious chalice of trust at the moment. Exactly. And also I, I, in, in the case of the pandemic, let's say there were very few people who would uh, likely admit that... Uh, well, or, or, or show some vulnerability and admit that uh, they don't know what was going to happen and, and they don't knew, they, don't, they didn't know uh, consequences of the pandemic, etc. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's very true. Yeah, and uh, we have a good detector for, how should I say this politely, untruths. Uh, you know, we have a good BS detector. And... Yeah. <laughs> um, and as humans, we know that, so we may as well name that. And, and there is a tipping point. As leaders, we want our leaders to, to kind of know where they're going, but we also want them to be real and vulnerable. So, you know, I'm working with one particular leader in the health sector at the moment who has been very good at creating a regular communication with their health staff. And some of that communication on some weeks has been saying, we're not exactly sure when the next amount of vaccinations are coming but they are coming, but we can't give you a date at the moment. So there's an element of certainty that they're coming, but there's an element of truth of we don't actually have an arrival date at the moment. So I think that kind of combination is really important for leaders. And last year I did a, um, a story collective from leaders that were leading through COVID. And one of the questions we asked every one of them was if you could go back in time before COVID started and whisper in your ear a piece of advice, knowing what you know now two years later, what would that advice be? And overwhelmingly, they said, 
trust yourself. You're a leader. You know what to do. Trust yourself. There's so many different pieces of information coming in. You need to actually push that out, decide what you're going to listen to, and then trust yourself. And I thought that was really interesting from a leadership point of view. We do have good leadership instincts and we need to trust ourselves. Mm, which mm-hmm. really good point uh, there, Cheryl. Just a quick question there. So for someone to trust themselves a little more, how would you, how would you, if you would, link that to someone being self-aware about themselves or connecting with themselves? Or how would you say somebody could increase their own self-trust? Um, three things that I coach when I'm building trust with people. The first one is to slow down and get in touch with your intuition, your gut, your gut feel, because we all have it. And when we get busy, we, we don't stop to listen to the wisdom that's within us. So we have that wisdom and we need to not ignore that. So get connected with your, you know, your brain and your heart um, together. That's the first thing I'd say. Secondly, is make sure you've got a couple of people, what I call your V squad, vulnerability squad. Make sure you've got a couple of people around you that you trust to hold the space for you and give you good feedback. As you said, that awareness, because sometimes you can't see it yourself. Or I need someone to say, Sherelle, you know, you were a bit abrupt there, or that was a bit direct. You know, maybe you needed to soften that a little bit. Oh, okay. That's, and I trust that person so I, I hear that um, without resistance and take that in. And then the third thing is go back to the BRAVING acronym. It's a checklist. Brené Brown has given us, based on thousands of pieces of research, this fantastic seven elements that build trust. Go down the list and tick off the ones you're already good at and work on the ones that you're not. So boundaries, reliability, accountability, the vault is for confidentiality, integrity, non-judgmental behaviour and generous intent. And work, you know, work on the ones that you're not good at. Mine is reliability. I'm late for meetings. I, you know, I take two weeks to follow up when I said it was going to be three days. You know, that's that's the thing that I've got to work on. And that might seem small, but it it eats away at the trust. It's like, oh, Sherelle's good at all these other things, but really, if she says she's going to have it in three days, it's going to be five. You know, so that's my area to work on. They'd be the three things I'd say. Sarika. Perfect. Thanks for sharing that, Cheryl. So. We have time for one more question, people, before I throw in just one other question to wrap up this conversation with you. No, no specific question for me. I have uh, a, lot of, a lot of things to process now. It's good. Thanks for sharing that. I was just asking something, like you said, the engagement increases connection and connection increases trust. So when you have a small company, how can we uh, increase engagement? Is through team building activities, uh, get to know each other better outside the, the office. How can we improve on this engagement to pursue the other things, com- connection and trust? Yeah, brilliant question. And I would love to have two hours to talk about that. <laughs> I'll give it to you very quickly. Um, A couple of things we do with all our teams, as you said, team development outside the workplace, we're humans. We need to connect together beyond just the transactional stuff that we do at work. So getting to know people outside. I'm not saying you have to build a raft or fall into each other's arms and do trust games. That's not what I'm saying. But you need to do something couple of times a year together that's just fun and gets to know each other you can also do little things um, in your workspace like 
uh, icebreakers, which always have a bad, I call them connection creators. So let's call them that. Connection creators that are otherwise known as icebreakers. But here's a couple, Isabel. One is hero, hardship and highlight. So people sit around and share very quickly, a couple of minutes, what's my hero moment this month? What, what inspired me? What was I proud of in myself? Or what did I find amazing in someone else? What was my hardship that I learned from? And what was my highlight? Could be personal, could be professional. Some My grandchild took their first steps. My daughter, you know, got their home organised. I got my back jab, whatever it might be. But you get to know people beyond the workplace. So those little activities um, can, can really be good. And I can, if you email me, I'll send you a couple of others that can be helpful. Don't underestimate the importance of people connecting just socially to get to know each other um, in their work. And then they're practising their courage to be vulnerable, which makes it safe, and then you start the trust building. Yeah, I actually saw this uh, because we, we were a very strong group, but then the pandemic came and we had a lot of people coming in, onboarding um, online. I never met them. So now we are together again and it's hard to recreate the, the team that we had because we've changed how many people in your team? 11. Okay, that's a good We're number. Very small, very small. Yeah, that, that's a good number. Some, somewhere between 7 and 15 is a good number where you can get to know each other. And even online, you can do the hero hardship and highlight. Um, you can also do a stand-up meeting where online I actually ask people to stand up, which means they have to adjust their camera, but to, to energetically stand up for a couple of minutes and say, what's my energy level out of 10 today? What's my personal highlight? What am I grateful for since I woke up? You know, the, the sun, whatever it might be. Um, just those little things. And then you can get into your business as usual, but those little things help to um, create a bond between the team. Someone says dogs and another person says dogs and all of a sudden they've got something to talk about other than just work. Yeah. I hope that helps. Yeah, a lot. Perfect. Then I have my... Uh... Let's say, yeah, I'll call it my second last question because there's another one that will follow. <laughs> so um, we've heard so many awesome nuggets, Cheryl. You've been sharing that throughout this whole conversation around trust. Um, give us some more wrapping up nuggets that you'd like for our listeners and viewers to take away. Um, what, what do you believe they should, or maybe their starting point for how do we build trust, with themselves, with their teams? You've shared so many. What else can you give us today? Um, well, I've got 20 years of knowledge, so where should I, <laughs> where should I start? Um, which I which guess, is why I found it difficult to phrase the question. I'm like, she's already been talking so much. Now, where, where do I place this? It's, but, yeah, it's, yeah. it's fun and joyful for me to share as much as I can. Um, I can put people in overwhelm because I've got heaps to share, but hopefully I'm creating some dot points. I guess... I would say the braving thing, if you, if you don't know anything about Brené Brown's work or you haven't seen the braving elements, absolutely look that up. She's got a Netflix talk which is called The Call to Courage and she goes through the braving and talks about trust. Um, the second thing I would say, which I talk to all our teams about, is always asking yourself, am I being curious? So am I asking a question or am I making a closed statement? So am I asking or telling? Because if I'm asking, then I'm creating a conversation and I'm building trust. It's a connection process. If I'm telling you this is going to be, this is what I need, this is what's happening, 
and I'm not leaving any room for conversation, there's no questions, that's not trust building, it's disconnecting. So asking, not telling. Um, am I being curious? I think that fits into your whole theme, Sarika, is the perspectives. Am I getting another perspective or am I just in my fixed mindset? Um, and the third thing is be an attentive listener. It's like my grandmother used to say, you've got two ears and one mouth, use them in the ratio you've been given. You know, and nowadays we're on our phones and we're doing something else while someone comes into our office or we've just come off one Zoom and we've gone into a Teams and we're just, we're not present. We're just in this constant whiplash of motion. So those leaders and those team members that are good at listening in the next decade are going to be the most influential people on the planet because it's a, it's a skill that we're losing quite passionate about it as you can tell so I would say you know being an attentive listener which fits into asking questions rather than telling talk less ask more questions be quiet more often um that's they're the three things I'd say about you know building trust brilliant I'd love to continue to be curious and ask you as many more questions as I could over this conversation uh, but I guess we are limited by time uh, so my very last question then, Cheryl, to you, if people would like to connect with you, where can they, what's the best place where they should find you? Uh, if they've got a direct question, they can email me. So my name, Cheryl at liftps.com. Uh, if they'd like to join the mailing list, that would be a great way to connect with the blog. So the blog comes out every fortnight. It's a short little video. And this theme of this year is on trust. Um, so you can watch all the back catalogue and then get the new ones um, that are coming out. Also, if you join the mailing list, you'll get the first review of the leadership stories that I've been talking about tonight that are coming out in December. So you'll get the first early bird um, awareness of those snapshots and they'll be coming out to the, the people that are on the mailing list. So you can go to our website, liftps.com, join our mailing list, and, uh, and then you'll get access to all the information. There's a bunch of free resources on the website as well. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thanks for sharing all these wonderful nuggets, Cheryl. I think this has been one of my really awesome conversations. Uh, really delighted to have you with us. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for being here and for the wonderful Thank questions. You. We'll see you again in our next show. Uh, and to know more about us, always keep listening in to perspectivesofchange.com. I'll see you the next time. Thank you.